Welcome to the Mustang UMC podcast recorded each Sunday morning during our 8.30 and 10.50 a.m. services. We invite you to join us in praise and worship during that time, and our hope is that this podcast serves as an encouragement for you and for your family in your daily life. looking at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 32 through 36. We stand as an honor of God and His Word. Let's listen to the Word of God. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and He said to His disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took with Him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And He said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. It certainly is a privilege to be able to share God's Word with you today, as, and particularly, as Aaron pointed out, that I'm his dad getting to preach at his church, and certainly I appreciate this opportunity. I'd like to begin by sharing with you a story about a Sunday school teacher who uh, came upon the pastor, and, and she was carrying a picture of Jesus in her hand, uh, it was a picture of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying, agonizing in his prayer, and in the background you could see that the disciples were asleep. And so she showed the picture to the pastor and said, today when I was talking about this story and showing them this picture, one of my students said, that reminds me of our pastor. And he was just sort of overwhelmed that one of the kids thought that he was praying like Jesus. And then she asked, would you like to know why he said that? And trying to be humble, he said, well, yes, sure. And somehow he'd missed the twinkle in her eye, and she said, because he said Jesus was praying a long time, just like our pastor, and everyone fell asleep. And so when we look at the story of Gethsemane, we know that it was an agonizing time for Jesus, and he prayed for a long time, and also that his disciples couldn't keep awake, even though he asked them to, probably pleaded with them in a way, stay with me, if you will. And so today I want to look at this Gethsemane experience, first from the perspective of Jesus, and then to be able to share some of my life and testimony with you. When Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, they were celebrating Passover, and now we call it the Last Supper because it was the last time that Jesus would have a meal with his disciples. And after that meal, they went to the Mount of Olives, and in particular, a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. 
When they got there, he told all of his disciples to stay awake and pray, but he took Peter and James and John with him farther into the garden. And when they tried to describe what this was like for Jesus, it says that he was agitated, distressed. And in fact, they remembered the words that he told him, that I am deeply grieved even to death. Keep awake. And then he went farther into the garden and he began to pray that if it were possible that this cup would pass from him. And then we have this prayer of Jesus. And I think it's so important that I wanted us just to go over it a little bit, phrase by phrase. He begins by addressing God in this way. Abba, Father. Abba is one of the few Hebrew words that I know. If we were to put it into English, the closest equivalent would be Daddy. It was the word that a little child uses for his father. And so when Jesus cries out to God, his father, he begins, Abba, Daddy. And then he goes on to the next phrase. For you, all things are possible. Now, oftentimes for children, their first superhero is dad. Dad can do just about anything. But for Jesus, it was literally true. His dad could do everything. For you, all things are possible. I think Jesus wanted to remind his heavenly father that, hey, you can do something about this. All things are possible with you. And then he goes to the third phrase. Remove this cup from me. Jesus, in his very humanness, spoke out to God in such a way that he said, remove this cup from me. Jesus knew what lay ahead. He had been telling his disciples for months that he would have to go to Jerusalem. And there he would suffer, and he would be crucified, and then he would be raised from the dead. They didn't understand, but he kept telling them that this is what lay ahead. And on this night, Jesus knew that it was the time. And so he says, remove this cup from me. And then the last phrase of this prayer, yet not what I want, but what you want. Jesus knew what lay ahead. He knew that he was not necessarily wanting to go through it, but he was also willing to do whatever God wanted and not what he wanted. And that's a very important part of the prayers we all know. In the King James Version that you may be, this prayer has been around so long that people sometimes pray it in the King James Version style. And this phrase goes like this, Nevertheless, not what I wilt, but what thou wilt. 
And so when I was thinking about this sermon series that Aaron was setting up with different people to give their testimony, um, called it Courageous Testimony, and I'm thinking, okay, normally when I'm preaching, I'm not necessarily talking about myself. Sometimes you get to hear things about preachers in their message, but it's not something that you necessarily just tell a testimony. And so as I thought over my life and what I could share, I thought about something that is not Gethsemane, but it's similar to that because it had to do with this last phrase, not what I want, but what you want. You see, it was on a, one evening, I uh, came home from a meeting at church, and uh, when I got there, Priscilla, my wife, she greeted me, and she had this wild look in her eyes, and she said, the bishop called. And I didn't get calls from the bishop, and so um, I thought, well, I better call him back. So I called the bishop back, and then I had a long, agonizing, sleepless night because there was a decision that needed to be made the next morning. Whenever I started out in life, I was blessed to be a part of a Christian family. My mother had been raised in the Methodist Church in Mounds, Oklahoma, and um, during World War II, she and my dad uh, moved to the Gulf Coast of Texas, eventually settling in Orange, Texas. And while she had been raised in the church, my dad had not, and so he did not go to church. But when they got to Orange, my uh, mother settled in on the Presbyterian Church. And she was attending there at the Presbyterian Church, taking first three children and then a fourth child. And I was not around yet. I'm the youngest of five children. And my dad was an athlete. He enjoyed sports, and he was playing on the local semi-pro baseball team. And um, one day he got hurt in one of the games. He hurt his knee, and he was in the hospital. And the Presbyterian pastor, Dr. Drake, was a baseball fan, and he had been watching the game, and he went and he visited my dad in the hospital. And this led to the conversation where my dad accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. Changed his life. He not only began going to church, but he became a leader in the church. At a, this was in his mid-30s. My dad is Native American, not well-educated in an upper-middle-class church. But he became a teacher of the Sunday school class that he was in. He became an elder in the church. And then later when they allowed women to be elders in the Presbyterian church, my mom was one of the first elders in the Presbyterian church there in Orange. And then they began to rotate. They had three-year terms that they served. When I was born, my dad was 39, my mom was 38. And so all I knew was that we went to church. And we went to church all the time because we were very active. My mom was the head of the Presbyterian woman. She was the president. Um, my dad worked with the Boy Scout troop. And whenever 
Whenever the doors were opened, we were there. Well, I say that, but most of the time we were opening the doors because we were the ones that did the Sunday night potluck dinners once a month. And I remember that I moved so many chairs and tables, and then as a pastor I've moved chairs and tables so that I would tell you that if I had a nickel for every chair and a dime for every table, I would be a rich man today. And so when I was a sophomore in high school, there was a teammate of mine on the football team who was killed in a car accident. And a couple days later, the football team had a memorial service there at the school. We met in the library conference room, and I remember that Brother Bob Simmons was the one who was leading the memorial service. He was a Baptist minister, and in true Baptist form, at the end of the service, after telling us that Neil had recently made a confession of faith in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and he extended the opportunity for us as well. And there were so many people that went down front, but you got to remember I was a Presbyterian. We didn't have altar calls, and I wasn't sure what I needed to do, so I just sat there. But I prayed, and I asked God to reach out to me and to forgive me and to save me. And I had this experience that I've never had since in the same way, that I felt God just sort of coming into my life from the head all the way through my body. And I knew that I knew that I was forgiven, that I was saved. That started a revival in my school. There had been a coach who had been active in trying to have a fellowship of Christian athletes group. And as a church-going guy, I thought I probably should be there, but I never did go until now. And so did lots of other people. In fact, I had the opportunity to talk to this coach a few years ago, and we were talking about this Fellowship of Christian Athletes group, and he said it was the largest group in the state of Texas at the time that I was in high school. We were far from being the largest school, but we had the largest Fellowship of Christian Athletes group. One of my friends realized that not everyone that attended school was an athlete. And so he formed an organization called Students for Christ. And high school youth would come early on Tuesday morning to be together as Christians, to share our faith, to show support, to be together. Some other friends of mine started a Christian singing group that we called the Celebration. They invited me to come because I was in choir, I sang, sang bass, they needed a bass, and so for the next five years, we went to various churches in the area to sing, and I went to more Baptist revivals because this, again, was a Baptist church that was doing this, and I can tell you that I have sung more verses of Just As I Am than any of you. And so, in this experience of growing up like this, I began to be even more active in my church. And the summer after, in fact, when I graduated from uh, high school, they didn't have a college class. And so they invited me to teach the kindergarten class. And then the next year, I got to teach the junior high class. And then that summer... Um, 
a friend of mine named Doug Berenger came driving up to my house. We were out in my driveway, and we were sort of griping to one another about this. The longtime youth sponsors, the Thompsons, uh, had decided they needed a break, and so the youth group wasn't going to meet during the summer. And we thought that that was a shame because kids have more time in the summer, and we thought there ought to be something for the youth. And we were talking about this, and then I don't know who said it first, but one person said, I will if you will. And the other responded, I will if you will. And so we went and talked to the pastor, and we told him that we thought we would like to work with the youth that summer. And being a courageous man, he gave the youth group over to Doug Berenger and Chris Tiger, which led then to the fall that we continued to work with the youth because the Thompsons felt like they had found their replacement. By my senior year, I had been hired as the youth director. It was a position that we didn't have in our church, but I was hired to do that. And during that senior year of college, I began to struggle with whether I should go in ministry or not, and I really didn't want to do that. And so um, it still was a persistent urging, but I basically told God, not yet. I'm not ready. And I really was sort of a polite way of saying no. At least I hoped it was polite. And so I graduated from college. I moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma and started working for my brother-in-law who was a home builder. Uh, while in Tulsa, uh, I decided that I would start attending the church that my sister and her family attended, which was First Methodist Church. And so that's how I got to be Methodist. And I met my wife Priscilla there in the Sunday school class. And uh, 41 years ago this month, we were married. And um, after we got married six weeks later, I was in seminary because I had decided finally that I needed to go and be a minister. And so we went to Kentucky. And after a while, I began to serve a church called the Seddon United Methodist Church did that for a year and a half. After graduating from seminary, I came back to Oklahoma, served Commerce, Oklahoma, which is north of Miami, for those of you who don't know where Commerce is. And then I went to Altus and served the Grace United Methodist Church, and then I went to Enid and served Christ United Methodist Church, and then to Owasso, where I served First United Methodist Church there. All in all, it had been 29 years serving as a pastor under appointment on the night that I got this call from the bishop. I don't know if any of y'all have had the uh, opportunity to meet a bishop. I don't know if you ever got to meet Bishop Hayes. Uh, he's a very persuasive man. And whenever he was talking to me on the phone, he said that, you know, he had been wanting to ask me for a while to serve on the cabinet, be a district superintendent. He had a particular place in mind, and, um, and then he said, if, if you don't want to do it this year, that's okay, I'll come back next year. And I thought, oh, there can't be a no, it's a not yet. But I prayed, and I agonized about praying, you know, about this, and 
The reason for it was because it wasn't what I wanted. I didn't want to be a district superintendent. Some people do, but that wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't what I aspired to do. And um, things were going good in Owasso. I'd been there for 14 years. The church had grown. It had doubled in size, more than doubled in size, so that it was averaging between 450 and 500 people on a Sunday morning. We had relocated to a new site. We didn't have any problems. People were happy. Life was good. Why would I ever want to leave that to be a district superintendent? And so I struggled. I wrote down a list of things about why this might be and what it might be. And I didn't sleep a whole lot because sleep seemed like a waste of time on a night like that. The next morning arrived and I made the call to the bishop and I said, yes, I'll be a district superintendent. I was assigned to the Lawton area in southwest Oklahoma, later became the Wichita district. I served as a district superintendent for four years, and then five years ago, Bishop Hayes came back to me and said, there's a new position that's being started in our conference. We want to start more churches, and we're going to have a full-time director of new faith communities. I'd like for you to do that. And I said, yes, because it was something I wanted to do. But then over the last five years, that role has changed a lot. And so now, as Aaron introduced me, I'm the director of congregational development and conference resources. I have responsibilities for churches from their birth to their death. And honestly, right now, we're spending a lot more time on closing churches than we are on starting churches. My ministry has changed a lot. Life has never been the same since saying yes. And the struggle that Gethsemane experienced for me was what I wanted and what I felt like God wanted was different. And I want what I want when I want it. And so it was a struggle. And so as I thought about this experience and thought about how to share a testimony with you, I thought about some things that I'd like to, my reflections on this. The first is that as a follower of Jesus, it's not really about what I want. It's about what God wants. As a follower of Jesus in your life, it's really not about what you want. It's about what God wants. It's very hard when your wanting and God's wanting is not the same. I found out that the statement, no, Lord, is really an oxymoron. You cannot say no and Lord in the same sentence because if you say no to your Lord, you don't have a Lord. You're the Lord. And so we have to learn about what it means to have a Lord. And sometimes what you want and what God wants are different. The second reflection I had was the importance of nevertheless praying. I had a seminary professor by the name of Steve Harper. He has written several books and I always try to get his books because I enjoyed him as a professor. I've learned a lot from him.
And one of the books that he wrote was called Praying in the Dark. It's about times whenever you're praying and it seems like nothing is getting through to God. Your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling or perhaps you can't even pray, but you're trying to and you're praying in the dark was how he described it. One of the chapters was about the experience that Jesus had at Gethsemane. And as he shared this, he said that he was reading the scripture and he was reading it in different translations and he went to the King James Version and it said, remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not what I want or what I wilt, but what thou wilt. In the version that I use, the New Revised Standard Version, it has remove this cup from me yet, a little three-letter word. But when he put in nevertheless, which is a 12-letter word, it got his attention. And he began to think, this word is important, and I've never really noticed it very much. And he was familiar with the story. He had preached on it. He had read it. But when he got to that word, nevertheless, he realized that it was the hinge point in the prayer that went from praying for what Jesus thought he wanted, remove this cup from me, to the point of saying, nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. And so I wanted to share a quote with you from that book. It says, when we pray, nevertheless, prayers, we declare to ourselves and those around us that our lives have more than a past and a present. They also have a future. The final word has not yet been spoken. And so if Jesus had simply stayed in the present and where he was about what he wanted, and he would say, remove this cup from me, if the prayer had ended there, it would not have been complete. It would have been focused on the past and the present, but it would have excluded the future. And Jesus opened up that future with the word, nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Not what I want, but what you want. And it is important when we pray, nevertheless. The third point of reflection for me was the importance of praying for God's will to be done. Jesus prayed for God's will here in Gethsemane. Very crucial point in his life where he said, not what I want, but what you want. Not what I wilt, but what thou wilt. But he had also taught his disciples how to pray. And he taught them what we call the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, it has these words. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray for God's will to be done, and I don't know about you, but the churches that I've been, we have prayed that prayer every week. There have been times that I've prayed it other times. And so I know that we have been praying for God's will to be done not just at a moment like Gethsemane, but just everyday living, every week going to church. We're praying for God's will to be done, and I'm telling you, it's a dangerous prayer. And so when we begin to pray for God's will to be done, then we have to realize how dangerous it is. And so I put this quote from Ellsworth Callis. 
When we dedicate ourselves to God's will, we enter conflict against all that is opposed to God's will. When we dedicate ourselves to God's will, seeking God's will, praying for God's will, we enter conflict against all that is opposed to God's will. The title of his book is The Will of God in an Unwilling World, because the world does not necessarily want what God wants. We know that, and when we begin to pray for God's will to be done, we're entering into conflict with everything that is opposed to God's will. And so that book, The Will of God in an Unwilling World, has been a big influence on me. Ellsworth Callis is a, was a great Christian man. He was the president of Asbury Seminary during the time that Aaron was there, and a preacher, a teacher of preachers, and I got to sit in on his class one time with Aaron. But this book has meant a lot to me, and one of the things that I liked about the way that Ellsworth Callis presented his material was every chapter was going toward an ending, and every book was going toward an ending. And I learned to start looking for the way that he ended. At the very end of his book, there's another quote that I'd like to share with you. He says, I cherish a dream, a dream that more and more of us will realize that when we pray, whether alone or in the company of God's people, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That we ourselves must be the beginning of the answer to the prayer. These words, your will be done, are nothing less than a declaration of war against all that is not God's will. And what I've learned is that oftentimes what is against God's will is right in here. That I am the one that is not wanting God's will because I want what I want when I want. And that's a part of what is our unwilling world. But if God's will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven, that it needs to begin with God's people, the followers of Jesus, who began to pray and to really mean it when they pray, because I know it's so easy just to say the Lord's Prayer because we got it in our minds and our memory, and we can just sort of slip on by because I've done it plenty of times myself. But if we really pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, then we're going to be in for a fight. We are declaring war with all that is against God's will. One of the things that Aaron likes to say is, I don't know your story, but I know you have one. I've had the opportunity today to share a part of my story. And it's really so hard to go through your life and think about what are the things that are important and what should be shared there are long stretches of time that you heard nothing about. But when I look back at what could be a testimony, what could possibly be a courageous testimony, I don't think there's anything more courageous than when people begin to pray nevertheless prayers. When they get to the point where they're not just saying what they want from God, but yet, nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want, that's a courageous prayer. And I pray for you and hope for you 
that you will pray courageous prayers and do courageous things. And I know that when we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, that that is a courageous prayer. And I hope that every time that you say the Lord's Prayer from here on out, that you begin to remember that if this is going to happen, that it begins with me. That it begins now. And it keeps on because if God's will is ever going to be done on earth, it will first have to be done by his people. And so when we look at these moments in our life, these Gethsemane moments that we think, what am I going to do and what do I want and what does God want? Then we need to be courageous and do not what I want, but what God wants. And so when I look out at you, I don't know what your story is. I don't know what you're facing this day. However, I do know this, that God is with you and will be with you when you pray. Thank you for listening to the Mustang UMC podcast. Once again, our services are at 8.30 and 10.50 a.m. every Sunday morning, and we would love to see you there. For more information about the Mustang United Methodist Church, please visit us at mustangumc.org or email us at office at mustangumc.org. That is office at mustangumc.org. We hope you enjoyed.